0: Hello and welcome to the second episode in the Creating Customer Success podcast series. My name is Dan and I'm your host. And my name is Alex and I'm your co-host. In this series, we are interviewing customer success leaders to learn how to build and run the best CS teams.
1: On today's episode, we're joined by Dan, who has a wealth of experience in CS, including previous leadership roles at Marketo, currently the GM at Gainsight, and also author of Customer Success, How Innovative Companies Are Reducing Churn and Growing Recurring Revenue. So thanks for joining
0: us today, Dan. Really excited to have you as a guest. To kick things off, it would be great to hear a little bit about your background and how you got started within customer success.
2: Sure. Yeah, I've been in the technology world for a long time uh, in Silicon Valley. I won't go all the way back because it'll take us half an hour to go through everything. Um, but I've been on, a. Uh, in most cases, I've been a post-sales person or a customer-facing person. Um, I did do a little stint in marketing. I don't try to tell a lot of people that, but uh, I did do a little stint in marketing and I really missed interacting with customers. And so I've always been on the post-sales side and kind of in the late 90s, I migrated towards roles that were about taking care of customers. So I've had almost every title you could even think of uh, that became customer success. So I had customer advocacy as a title, customer relations as a title, account manager as a title. And then somewhere in the mid 2000s, it started to become customer success. And so I found myself uh, with a VP of customer success title. I took that job at Marketo, as you mentioned. Uh, And that's when it really started to crystallize for me because we were in that spot at Marketo where uh, we had almost a thousand customers uh, and had a... I had a real churn challenge. It's the reason that they hired me and built a customer success team because we were thinking about going public and our churn rate was way too high to do an IPO.
0: Was there anything that was causing that churn?
2: Yeah, lack of attention. (laughs) I mean, those early SaaS companies like Marketo were perfect examples of what happens if you don't do customer success and then how different does it look if you do customer success? And in Marketo's case, it was like, Well, if you don't do customer success, your retention rate is 78%. And then if you do a decent job of customer success, it's 88% two years later, because that's exactly what happened just from just not, not because of me, but because they put some focus on it, hired me, I hired some smart people, and we started paying attention to customers because what had happened before we did customer success was customer would buy the product, go through an onboarding process that would take a couple months, maybe three. And then it would be total silence between month three and month eleven, and then they would get a phone call saying, "Hey, we'd like you to renew your contract." And all all SaaS companies went through this, including Salesforce. They found out that a lot of times the answer to that question was, "I don't think so." Yeah, you guys ignored me for the last nine months. Uh, I've been struggling like mad. I'm not getting any value out of your product, and now you're calling me to ask me to renew. And my answer is no. And and so that, that was the challenge that everyone was having to deal with. And because we put customers on subscription, it became imperative that we figured out how to deal with it.
0: Interesting. I guess with that sort of subscription model, is that something that you have seen is still developing, I guess, from those early days, even to now with the way that clients are um, sort of committing to different vendors?
2: Yeah, it's a model that's changed everything in the technology world. Ultimately will go way beyond technology. I think it already has. Because Wall Street loves the subscription model. If you look at the valuations of subscription companies like Salesforce. And so it's not very hard to figure out that if Wall Street loves a particular business model, then every CEO in the world starts to feel some pressure to do some something like that. And so that includes lots of non-technology companies right you can buy underwear on subscription these days you can do class pass if you want a subscription to all sorts of gyms and fitness classes there's subscriptions for packaging pre prescriptions you know from the medical world there's just there's a subscription for everything because it is a model
1: that uh, the public markets love because it makes your business so predictable and so forecastable so how do you think this changes based on maturity of the business. So I guess from our exposure, what we see is it's mostly startups um, or companies that are earlier in that cycle. Is it still possible for someone to implement CS if they're a bit further along that journey?
2: It's possible, but it's harder, It's much easier to do right from the start. But you think about some of the companies that are doing this and they're really big, really mature companies, Cisco, Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, Right? they're all Actively trying to implement customer success and kind of get that DNA and that mentality into their business, and that's a really hard row, right? That's really hard at that size company, especially because, uh, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, a lot of people just don't quite get it, and it's not because they're not smart enough; they just didn't grow up in a world where it mattered. Think about—I often say, you know, if I'm if I'm working for a CEO who's over fifty years old there's a really good chance that they grew up in a perpetual license world and didn't need customer success to be successful. And if I'm working for a CEO's 35, then I know they probably get it because they almost certainly grew up in a cloud world. And the difference between those two guys is not intellectual at all. It's just what's what's in their DNA and what's made them successful in the past. And when one model has made you successful in the past and now it's a different model, it's just a hard transition. It's not, Not impossible. A few companies have done it. Adobe made that transition. A company in the U.S. called Parametric Technology Corporation, PTC, made that transition from perpetual to cloud and and subscription. But it's a really tough tough road.
0: I was going to say on that, actually, are they companies that you would say are probably implementing CS quite well and would be good examples to look at?
2: Yeah, I think the two things go together. If you put customers on a subscription, you have to have customer success. Lots of people haven't concluded that until they feel the pain of churn. But I tell CEOs, if you're moving to a subscription model, then you're going to have to do customer success. And if you think you can get by without it, I say more power to you. If you prove that you can, then please let us know and write a book about it because you'll make lots of money. However, if you think you can do it without customer success, then you're telling the world that you're smarter than the CEOs of every single public SaaS company in the world. So if you're sure that your product is <clears throat> is either better or you're smarter than Mark Benioff and Anil Bushri and Phil Fernandez and Aaron Levy and on and on and on, all 127 public SaaS companies, they all have customer mm-hmm. success teams. So I'd, I think all businesses would be better if they could build a perfect product and not need that expensive organization, but that's
1: just not the way it works. Yeah, I, I quite like how you... Phrase phrased it as a DNA as well. That's the difference between the different potentially generations of yep. CEOs. Um, I know people have explained it as like a culture before CS is a culture. It's not yep. just an organization. That's right. Um, if you were to say what makes up that DNA, what would be the key, the key things?
2: Yeah, I think for, uh, I'll start at the top, for a board and a CEO, it's an understanding of the, the balance that's required to make a subscription-based company successful. And what I mean by that is so many, and I and I grew up in this world too, uh, a world where the business was literally driven exclusively by sales and marketing. This is how a lot of companies made their made their. Hey, Oracle was famous for being great at sales and marketing, um, and so the the sales organization literally drove the company. They decided what product features were needed, what products were needed, what marketing was needed right because the entire business hinged on whether we could find a whole bunch of new customers and sell them our product right well in the in the subscription world there's a balance that's required that changes that that kind of power uh situation dramatically because we can no longer just find new customers and sell them our product we have to actually make them successful otherwise they churn and the cost of acquiring that customer is more than you collect in the first year from that customer, typically in a subscription model. So now we have to think about, okay, I I have a sales organization. I still need them to be aggressive. I need them to find new customers. I need them to sell, but I need them to sell with the awareness that most of the revenue is gonna be delivered, not at the time of the original deal, but after that. So you have to set the rest of the company up for success. Meaning whatever I learned during the sales cycle, now really has to transfer to the post-sales organization and I have to make sure I don't oversell the customer and I have to make sure I set expectations properly and I have to make sure that the things that I show in the demo actually work in the product because if I make any of those mistakes the post-sales people just get posed right they're they're out on a limb and instead of helping the customer to be more satisfied they start Behind the curve, and they're trying to pick that slack up, and that's a world that's really different. CEO job today is much harder than it was back in the good old days because all they really needed to focus on was sales and marketing, maybe a little bit of product, but now a CEO has to have this vision across the entire landscape and lifetime value of the
0: customer. and are there any ways of which you would recommend the company can recognize perhaps maybe where they're at, whether they are, sales and marketing led, and if so. Look to transition to be more customer face, uh, sort of customer focused.
2: Yeah, I mean, the obvious way is just look at the numbers because if you if you don't do that, you're going to get burned by churn almost certainly, or you're not going to get all the value you could out of your install base. It's really not just about churn. It used to be today, it's much more about not only do we want those customers to stay, but we need them to buy more, and we need them to be advocates on our behalf. One of the things I think that's often missed. In the customer success conversation, is that if you do customer success really well, it actually drives new business sales because we live in this connected world. And if you're a prospect of mine during the sales cycle, there's almost no chance that you're not going to one day go to LinkedIn, find a friend of yours who works for a company that uses our product. And you just call them and say, Would you buy from them again? Are they responsive? Do they deliver what they promise? Not, are they perfect? But are they a vendor that you would be like like to work with? And there's this, this natural order of things where every one of those conversations then either accelerates that sales cycle or it decelerates it, right? There's no apathy. You call your friend, he's not gonna say, ah, you know, it's okay, it's okay. No, he's gonna give you very specific opinion. Just like this exact same thing, by the way, has happened in the hiring world, where if I was interviewing you guys for a job, you would give me your resume, that's fine. At some point you might say, here's some references, and I might call them, but way more likely is me going to LinkedIn, finding somebody I know who knows you, and saying, hey, would you hire this guy? Would you like to work with them again? Yeah, you're looking right? for a trustworthy opinion. It's so much more valuable yeah. than yep. a scripted reference, because our our prospects know what our what our reference is customers are going to say because we've basically told them what to say same thing if you guys give me a personal reference i know what your mom's going to say of course (laughs) she loves you and you're the hardest working guy in the world right but a friend of yours that i also know uh, and have some trust with is going to tell me the absolute truth
0: definitely it's almost like that brand (coughs) reputation and advocacy through yeah making customers successful and i even think like apple sometimes would be a good example of this on the retail side Whereby they have, or Steve Jobs especially in the past, has focused had that customer focus and product focus, and as a result of that, you have massive advocates that will now literally just buy Apple based on past experiences. And yeah, we'd all reputation. love to build. We'd all love to build a fan base like uh, like Apple. One has. day, I, when
2: I when I wrote the book, somebody once gave me this idea that there's a couple different kinds of loyalty. Um, one is uh, basically. Um, I'm not going to remember exactly, but uh, there's a kind of loyalty that has to do with convenience. So the place that I stop to get petrol uh, is based on where it is, on which side of the road it is, on my way home from work, right? It's not because there's some high level of loyalty. And then there's a a level of loyalty that uh, is constituted by the word love, which is I, I love my iPhone or I love Starbucks or I love whatever, right? What's interesting is I think there's actually a third level uh, called fanaticism, and that is people who are willing to stand outside the store for three days in the rain waiting to buy a product that they basically already have in their pocket. They go out of that way specifically. That's fanaticism. Yeah. That's Apple. And maybe there's a couple of other companies that have developed that kind of loyalty, but uh, it, it is kind of funny, right? And it's, it's a sustained Apple through a whole bunch of years where they didn't build any good products at all. They were awful. Microsoft saved them by loaning them some money back in the early 90s, I think. Uh, and they just didn't build good products. And all of a sudden, the iPod came along and the world changed. Changed everything. Uh, but they had such a fan base. Oftentimes, it was anti-Windows fan base, but they just loved everything Apple did, whether it was good or not. And man, we would all love to have customers that were that loyal to us. Definitely.
1: Yeah, I think in summary, it's that sort of partnership, isn't it, that you're entering into, that's the difference between taking it back to what you said about being sales and marketing led. The difference is you set out in a partnership with the customer. Yeah. Uh, we want you to help us be better yeah. so that we can help you be better. Yeah. So that's sort of vice versa.
2: I think yeah. customers, there's a level of loyalty you
1: get by, by sharing that
2: idea with them. We're not just here to sell you something. We're not even here just to help you use it. We want your input. in it. That'll help us be a better company both process and product and everything else. Absolutely.
1: So I think, um, The next thing we wanted to to get your opinion on really was uh, taking it back to what I said around um, startup companies. They've made the decision that they want to implement customer success as a function. Um, Where would you typically start?
2: Yeah, I would try to start at the top because it really does have to be, uh, it has to be more than a department. So you can't start customer success and say, if we build this little organization here, everything will take care of itself. That's why the the customer success law number one is it has to be a top down company wide commitment. So I think in that situation, if they're an early stage startup doing customer success, probably in a pretty good position because that, that nothing happens without the CEO saying I want that to happen, right? So probably has pretty good support from the top. And then I think uh, I think you you want to start it not just with people but with some principles. What are the things that I'm trying to not just trying to accomplish, but what are the what are the procedures, processes, and attitudes that I want to put in place when I when I say I'm going to do customer success? And that is obviously you want to take care of customers, but there's probably some very specific principles that you're going to apply. Like I want my customers to be delighted, and I want certain moments uh, in their life cycle to be moments of delight. And here's how we're going to do that, right? Now there's a whole bunch of variations on that, and every CEO or or VP of customer success might look at that differently. But I think you want to have some kind of foundational principles. Not just let's take care of our customers. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I would like it to go further. If I was consulting with a CEO, I'd say make sure that you put a few stakes in the ground for what you want customer success to be, because I want you to have some ownership for it, and the company needs to hear from you. Like here would be an example. Every single time, if I'm a CEO, every single time I do an all-hands meeting, I need a customer story. Not a sales story, not a marketing story, not how great our last event was. I need a customer story to be part of every single all-hands. And we did this at Gainsight. We we have a gong, a gong that we ring when we close a sales deal. It's about nine inches across. <clears throat> we also have a gong we ring when we do a renewal or an upsell or whatever, something with the customer. It's about four feet. Four feet across. Nice. And if they rang it right now in, in California, we'd be able to hear it right here. It's <laughs> loud, really loud. That's that's kind of an optics thing, but it mm-hmm. matters, right? Definitely, like sales is important, but guess what? The rest of the company is really important too.
0: Yeah, and I think driving the importance of CS is certainly something that, that can help with. How would you go about defining those principles with a CEO? So, especially for an organization that perhaps isn't doing that already, they've maybe got a CS team established. And that's going to be growing over time with the company. What would be your advice and how would you approach that with a CEO? Yeah, I think
2: a lot of that probably hinges on hiring the person who you want to run customer success. And hiring that person probably earlier than you probably technically need them. This is true for a CEO in every organization. Oftentimes you start a company... And I've done a bunch of startups. You hire three or four salespeople and you just send them out there and say, go sell, go sell, go sell. And then somewhere along the way, it feels like you're getting some traction. And then you say, Oh, I need a VP of sales. If you hire the right VP of sales, the immediate reaction from the CEO is, I should have done that a year ago. Same thing when they hire a CFO. Oh man, I should have done that a year ago. If they pick the right person. Customer success is the same way, right? You could take three or four people and say, Hey, you each have 25 customers, go make sure they're Really getting value and super satisfied. But they're going to do the. they're going to kind of do things their own way. It's probably not going to be a ton of coordination between them, and a leader will bring that, right? So I'd say find a leader, make them manage some customers initially, but uh, but have them be a high enough level person so that they can do that and then grow into managing a team. And I, I did it at Marketo. I hired a guy, I said, Hey, with half your brain, I want you to manage this set of customers with the other half of your brain. I want you to help me figure out what we're going to do when we have 8,000 customers instead of 400, right? Because the scaling part of this is really hard. It's easy when it can be just people, but at some point you can't just do it with people. You have to have process, you have to have systems, you have to have discipline, and that's what a good leader will bring. Just like in sales, right? Go off and sell that's fine. Be smart about it. You know, figure out your own pitch, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point you need some discipline. Like here's our pitch deck. Here's our branding. Here's our positioning statements. Here's our pipeline. Here's how we're going to move customers through that. Here's our target kinds of customers, right? So sales and marketing have become really disciplined over the years. I think customer success needs to have that same kind of discipline.
0: Especially like you mentioned there with scaling. So are there any like, good structures that you would recommend along the way? And how would that, I guess, change from a startup to perhaps maybe when you've got literally like 8,000 customers? Yeah,
2: yeah I, think, I think you can't, it's hard to start too early on building foundational principles. And the, the first foundational principle I'd say is segment your customers. You have to realize that uh, you, you will not be able to afford in the long run to treat all your customers the same. Now, if you have ten customers, you better treat them all the same. And that means the CEO should call them all, every one of them, every single day, right? Uh, but when you have fifty, this becomes unreasonable, right? You just can't. So, probably as you approach hundred customers, you should start thinking about, uh, you know, which customers are my most important ones, and what is my ha- what is my high value customer lifecycle look like? And I we always think about it as a pyramid. Right? There's a small number of high-value customers at the top of that pyramid. And as you go down, at the bottom, there's a long, pretty long tail, typically, of low-value customers. And you can't afford to treat all of them the same. Now, customers don't want to be segmented. We do it for our own purposes, and it's a financial reason. Because I can't afford, like if I have a customer paying me 100 pounds a month, I just can't afford to do the same things for them that I can for a customer who's paying me a million pounds a year. You know, I'm going to give that customer very white glove treatment. We're going to talk to them every week. We're going to do quarterly business reviews. The CEO is going to call them twice a year. We'll do on-site visits, et cetera, et cetera. I can't do any of that for a 1,000, pounds a month customers. I have to do that in a much lower-cost way. That means I won't touch them as often, and a lot of those touches will be automated, right? They'll be through email and webinar programs and things like that. That's really, really important, and if you do that well... Now you can map out the life cycle of customers for each of those segments. Now you can figure out your headcount model, et cetera. And that becomes something that, that's a roadmap that can really work.
0: And I guess because a lot of companies will sometimes segment client bases at a vertical level. Is so essentially would you do that just based on value? Would it matter if perhaps people were working with clients across numerous verticals? As long as they just like yeah. solely enterprise or
2: I would unless it was a really unique situation, I'd start with uh, not verticalizing because this can get really complicated really fast. And by the way, back to the pyramid, when I say value, I don't just mean how much the customer is paying us. There could be other aspects of value. For example, the one that's most common is opportunity. Like if Google's a customer of mine, they might have a really small contract, yeah. but I might still put them in the top category the because of the opportunity to sell them a whole bunch more uh, or even just because of the brand name, right? Even if I know I'll never sell them anything else, I still want Google in my top platform to be doing references and speaking engagements and things like that. So you really have to think about value. Value is kind of the key word, I think, in the customer success world.
0: And I guess even with, um, and something I've tried to do in the past, uh, sort of previous companies to what I'm at now, is just actually working out the cost of service at times. Because when you have those low value clients that you're potentially firefighting a lot of the way through the year to renew those, if you was to sometimes work out, The cost of service; it could even be more outweigh the actual value that they are worth to the business at the moment. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. And I guess have you come across that? Have you found any ways to measure that? Yeah, I
2: think about it. If you have a hundred pound customer, and I pay a a senior CSM, call it one hundred fifty thousand pounds a year, if they pick up the phone and have a forty minute conversation with that customer, all the profit in that contract is gone for that month. It doesn't take very much, right? So that's why. I think we have to have a discipline around our life cycle journey because if if we don't if we don't establish the journey for the customer they'll establish it for themselves by making a lot of noise by emailing my CEO by opening 100 support tickets by calling my voicemail every single day so I think we have to establish this life cycle and we have to explain it to the customer like for that price that you're paying for our product we're going to give you this un- unbelievably great service but it's going to be all self-service and tech touch, right? We don't give them the cell phone number of a senior CSM. Yeah. So I think customers get that, right? They know they're paying for something. And if, and if it's people's time that you have, you have to, we have to limit how much time, how much time they get. So I think those disciplines become part of the process of explaining to customers and, and getting them disciplined, right? It's our
1: discipline, but it's disciplining yeah. our customers. As I think well. that then um, that then brings out the partnership that we referenced before as well. So you'll then find out which co- customers are willing to work with you. Yeah. They still might get frustrated with certain certain things, but you'll then identify which ones are yeah. going to be long-term
2: customers. Yeah. The way I would do it is uh, establish, let's call it the, the long tail, the low end of that pyramid. I would establish the lifecycle journey for them, which will probably be mostly automated. And then say to those customers, by the way, if you want our white glove treatment, you can get it. You can get it either by paying a million dollars a year for our product, or you can get it by paying for that level of service, which will be 25 times what you're paying for the software. Most likely, none of them are ever going to take you up on that, but at least you give them the option. So they're not, one of this is just just to avoid the complaining. Like you can't complain if we give you the option to buy what you want. You can complain about the price, but at the end of the day, we're giving you the opportunity to get what you want. And if you're not willing to pay for it, then kind of, you know, stop whining and go away.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. no 100% If you give customers choices,
2: then they have less to complain about. That's kind of the bottom line. Yeah. They'll go with the one that benefits them.
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, One thing I was going to say, so this segmentation is is quite clear. would you say that this is something that should be set in stone and constantly stay like that? Or is it something that needs to be reviewed over time as the business grows?
2: Yeah, I think there's nothing at any business that can be set in stone because we live in a dynamic world. So I think you have to be willing to adapt. And you need to uh, you need to adapt not just because your business is changing, but you better be measuring some things to say, is this working or not? Like if I map out this journey for this set of customers and 97% of them churn. I'm gonna say, I bet that journey's not working very well for them, right? So I better adapt and I better adapt quickly. And that's why I think customer success, one of the major things that has to happen that hasn't wasn't true five years ago, becoming more and more true, is it has to become data driven. Like we need to know, uh if we're do if we do activity X, what is what is result Y. And if result Y isn't what we want, then we better change Activity X to something else. And our goal is always obviously to to raise the loyalty and raise the retention. That's the goal of customer success. So if I'm doing, for example, if I'm doing quarterly business reviews, expensive things to do. And whenever I do that with a customer, the their health score goes down, their likelihood to renew goes down, then I better either change the way I'm doing those quarterly business reviews or stop doing them. Right? It's like in here's the analogy in sales. You want to do two things in sales. You want to get the pipeline to be bigger, and you want to make it move. So if you do any activities in sales that don't grow the pipeline and don't move the pipeline, you should stop doing them. In customer success, what we use as kind of that proxy for pipeline is health score. Uh, and so we all want, I want activities that move the health score up. So if I'm doing activities and they don't move the health score up, I should probably think about whether those are the right activities.
0: And how do you measure that health score and define what should be, yeah,
2: it's different for every company. But here's the overall uh, synopsis: is what are the key pieces of information that would tell you whether a customer is is uh, getting value out of your product? for For most companies, it's some combination of they use our product this this frequently, they use these parts of our product, they daily are daily active inside of our product, etc. And then t- on top of that, I would add in. Probably do do regular surveys. What's their survey score? How often are they calling customer support? In some cases, I might take into that the financial things. Are they buying more product from me? That's a good sign of loyalty. Uh, are they paying their bills on time? Potentially is a sign of loyalty. We have all of this digital information that if we consolidate it in a relatively intelligent way, it gives us a pretty good idea whether a customer is healthy or not. It'll never be perfect because digital doesn't take the place of human interaction. Um, but for some of our customers, we have to rely on, on their digital footprint. Others, we get some sentiment because we talk to them all the time. But you you have to start to conceptualize and put into practice this idea that every customer has a health score. I just need to figure out what it is, and then I need to work to move it up.
0: I guess change that over time and track against perhaps... Um retention to see yeah essentially what is the best way of being able to predict yeah i would recommend every year you look at
2: uh, all the customers that churned and what was their health score when they churned what was their health score three months before they churned uh, and what was dragging the health score down Uh, or if they're all if they're all really good health score and they churned then something's wrong with the way you're doing health scoring because it's not really indicating
1: what you want which is is that customer loyal so a lot of these are very Longer term metrics that we're talking about loyalty, trust, health score, etc. Um, how do you recommend that someone would set up a team and find those qualities to make someone be more long term thinking, as opposed to uh, thinking on a quarter by quarter basis? What should I focus on? How am I going to get my bonus, etc.?
2: Yeah, I think the the right metrics are both long term and short term focused. Like, think about the the sales analogy, the pipeline. Uh, is is in place because I want to know, can I make this quarter's number? But I'm also looking at the pipeline to say, can I make this yearly number? And even is the pipeline doing a growth rate that tells me that next year is going to be good as well. So it's both short-term and long-term. I think Health Score has that same capability, right? It can be a good short-term indicator uh, as it fluctuates of so whether we're moving the customer in the right direction. And in the long run, if that's creeping up over time, there's a reasonable uh, assumption that it's going to continue to do that. And that will give me a good understanding, I think, of lifetime value of the customer potentially. Now, these things are never straight lines. They're always sine waves, but you have you just want to tip the sine waves so that ultimately the the weighted average or the moving average is going upwards. Um, so I think, uh, and then I think you do have to manage activities, but you have to have a result of those activities. And I think in, in the customer success world, health score is a result. But now I need this is the hard work. I need to figure out what are the activities that actually move that health score in the right direction. Right? Do if I do weekly calls with customers does that do it? Maybe maybe not. But I need to be measuring that. This is why systems have become so important because you can't do you can't do all of this in a spreadsheet. You have to have some kind of a system that says, "Hey, I did this activity 35 times with 10 different customers and in every case the health score went up at least 5 points." that seems like an activity we should keep doing.
1: Yeah, so what was the result from that? Yeah, exactly. I
0: quite like the fact as well, Like even just going back to the cost of service that we spoke about earlier, just like, un- like highlighting what isn't working and perhaps maybe yeah. where CSMs are wasting time. Yeah. Um, it's something me and Alex talk a lot about. Like, How do you recognize perhaps maybe things that you're doing and activities that aren't driving success for the customer or perhaps that time could be allocated elsewhere um, in a more efficient way? Yeah. Does that go back to the health score and looking at the activities or is there anywhere that you see CSMs particularly wasting time in general from experience?
2: Well, I think there's a discipline here. There's two things. The health score I think is something like that is the right indicator of whether those activities are working. But the the discipline of saying here's our roadmap for how we're going to interact with these customers gives the CSM permission in some cases to not do something. For example, if I say, hey, you know, we have a new category, we're going to call it low touch, which means you only get one call a year to that customer, which gives that CSM permission to not respond to every voicemail that customer leaves me. So they call me nine days in a row. My temptation as a CSM is to call them back and get them off my back and see if I can help them. But if my new discipline says I can't do that because it breaks our model, then as a boss, I'm giving you permission to not return the call from those customers. And that's a good thing. The other thing that we all do, naturally, human nature, is there are certain customers we like talking to, and there are other customers that we dread talking to, and the discipline says we treat both of them the same. right? If your health score is low or if your usage has dropped or you gave us a bad survey score, whether you're the customer I hate talking to or not, you are required to contact that customer. It's our job. We're not trying to be mean. It's like it's our job to make our customers more successful. That means we have to deal with some of the ones whose personality isn't quite what we wish it was, right? It's a tough world, right? It's not, it's not fun sometimes to be a CSM because we deal with a lot of challenging customers as well as the fun ones. But the discipline I want to put in place forces
1: you to not just spend time with Joe and Harry and Sally because you like them, right? I think that's potentially the most rewarding part though, isn't it? If you can engage with that type of customer, that is maybe uh, they're moving towards the more negative perception of of your software or your tool. And if you can then turn them around to then become an advocate, that's... They have uh,
2: unhappy customers can oftentimes end up being your absolute best references, right? Because if you can turn them around, they're typically not unhappy just because they're grumpy and because, because they don't like you personally. Why did they buy your product? They bought your product to get a business outcome. If you can prove to them that they're getting that business outcome, man, they may they may still be grumpy because they want more and more out of you, but they'll be a really good reference. I often tell CSMs, you, this is why we have to remove the word happiness from our language. This is about customers being happy. Because sometimes our best customers are never happy because they're always demanding more from us because they want to get more value out of our product. And that customer never seems like he's happy. But he will do the best references. Man, these guys have given me all of this value. There's a couple of things I wish they were doing and they tell me they're working on it. But man, the value that they brought to me is huge, right? That's gonna be a great reference even if that customer never feels like they're happy. And there are customers like that. You guys probably have customers like that too. And
0: I guess it almost shows that they care. The fact that they are willing to be unhappy with you and to maybe voice frustrations. It goes back to the fact that they are, yeah, they essentially need you for a reason and are using you for it's it's that trust isn't it they trust that you will listen to
1: their opinion and value what they've got to say well everyone in the customer success world knows
2: that the worst customers are the unhappy silent customers if someone calls me and yells at me i'm fine with that i can deal with that i've been dealing with that for 40 years right because he's expressing that he wants something and and if he can express to me what that is i can probably help deliver it but the guy who's Unhappy with us, who never picks up the phone, won't respond to our emails. That's the killer.
0: I guess with those types of customers, it, it can be very difficult to reengage them. And I always find that sometimes, as a CSM, you are almost reselling the proposition and the value to those those types of customers. Are there any strategies that you find that work particularly well in being able to like reengage somebody that is not seeing value or hasn't yeah. in the past? There's no magic. Step number
2: one sounds pretty obvious: is don't let them get disengaged, right? Make sure right from day one you have a really good program to onboard them. The first ninety days of the customer lifecycle are really critical, so that's kind of a no-brainer. But customers do become disengaged uh, oftentimes because key people leave, somebody else comes in, they're not bought into the vision, whatever. Um, I think there's a few things. There's nothing. There's no magic magic wand here. Uh, there's a few things that we could try. Obviously, have somebody else contact them, somebody with a different title, a higher title, including the CEO. That's one way. I think um, try to bring them value. Like instead of calling them and saying, hey, please call me back. I want to work with you to make sure you're doing X, Y, Z. Uh, use customer benchmarks. Like, hey, I we've just done some really interesting research and realized that our top 50 customers all use our product in a very specific way. And I'd like to share that information with you. Customers love benchmarks. When we do QBRs with our customers, we show them their health score. And every single time you show a customer the health score and their next question is, what's the highest score and how do we get there? What they're saying is, how do I become a better customer, right? Uh, there's this competitive nature to all of us, right? And, and if I bought your product and I'm paying good money for it, then I want to be the best user of your product because I know if I'm your best user, that means I'm getting the most value, right? So, um, so benchmarks, I think, work. Uh, the, I, I've often said to my CSMs, the most valuable statements you ever make to your customers start with these words, my best customers do. You can finish that sentence any way you want, but everyone will lean in when you say, Hey, let me tell you what my best customers do. Um, so, the other thing I would do is go to your sales team and ask them what their tricks are, because they have the exact same problem with prospects. Good deal, kind of percolating along, looks like it's going to happen. Suddenly they go silent. How do you get their attention? Go to LinkedIn, like everything they post on LinkedIn, go to Twitter, like everything they post on Twitter. Whatever, right? Make it a make it a social thing. There's a lot of little tricks, but sales guys know a lot of these tricks as well. Um, there's there's no magic though.
1: So we've obviously spoken a bit there about uh, the qualities needed for re-engaging customers. Um, I want to take that a bit wider, uh, and if you were able to build the ideal CSM, what would you say are the the key qualities, skill sets that you'd be looking for? <clears throat>
2: yeah no uh no payment no payment for that question because I've been asked it eighteen <laughs> million times, but it is a key- really key question. I think I break this down <clears throat> there's two there's two personality characteristics, and then there's kind of three skill sets, if you will. The personality characteristics, and I'm stealing this straight from Jeffrey Moore, so it comes from a guy much smarter than me. He says he thinks the key characteristics of a good CSM are curiosity and empathy. And I agree 100%. By the way, curiosity should be on everyone's job description because every single person would do their job better if they could develop a natural curiosity for their job. <clears throat> and I think as a CSM, you have to have a natural curiosity for the customer. How does your business work? And how does our product fit into your business? And not a scripted conversation, but a real natural curiosity. And then empathy, they have to believe that you actually care. And I've often said when I interview CSMs, I wanna determine whether or not they will actually have some physical pain if their customers aren't doing well. Do you sleep well at night if your customers aren't doing well? And if the answer is yeah, I sleep fine every night, then I probably don't (laughs) want to I mean, I don't want my CSMs to get sick, but I want them to feel like I I want them to feel bad if their customers aren't doing well. That's what drives us and motivates us. I think
1: the empathy is both external and internal as well, isn't it? In terms for of empathy sure. for the customer, but also, uh, you know, the teams that they work with internally. So whether it's the account managers, the product team, you know, C suite, whoever it is, empathy and being able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's just a great human characteristic, right? I mean, we're better people if we if we have true empathy. Like, I might be asking my engineering team, "Why can't you just fix this bug? This customer's screaming at me to fix this bug. Just go fix it." Really, you think they don't have anything else to do? Is that why they're not fixing it? Of course they do. We have to understand, right? These things are hard. There's trade-offs. Every single business decision is a trade-off. So empathy is a it's a good human trait, basically, overall. And then on the skill set side, this is a little bit oversimplified because I have a much a much longer list of kind of qualities of a good CS or a great CSM. But the three things I try to get out of an interview is do you have um Do you have domain expertise? It's number one on my list. Like if I'm selling accounting software, I want to hire people who have some accounting experience because that's going to give them credibility with my customers. At Gainsight, this is pretty simple, right? Our domain expertise is customer success. So if you're a CSM, you better know something about customer success. Sounds simple, but what that turns into for us is, can you have an intelligent conversation with the chief customer officer about how to organize their customer success team or what a good comp plan looks like, things like that, right? Not product related, domain related. So, domain expertise, then I have to be, I have to believe you can be a product expert. And I don't mean technically, I mean from a user standpoint. You have to, like I tell my CSMs, there's no question that an end user of Gainsight should ever ask you that you don't know the answer to. Like how could I create this report or where do I go to find XYZ or how could I get this set of data and load it into GainSight? You need to be a user-level expert. Now, we use our own product all day, every day, so the CSMs naturally get really good at it. But there are still parts of the product we don't use as often as IBM might, for example, or somebody else. So you have to be a product expert or, or be able to become a product expert. You can't, in our worlds, we probably don't get to hire product experts, because there's not that many users of our products in the world, but we want people who we're pretty sure can become product experts. And then the last one is just kind of generally, do they have good customer-facing skills, right? Are they the kind of people who will prepare for every call, will have good follow-up for those calls? Do they have good communication skills? Uh, Can they read a room well? Can they stand in front of a group of people and do an effective presentation, right? Those kinds of things. A lot of traits that are very similar to what you would want to look for in a salesperson. Not the selling part of it, because I don't want my CSMs to be selling, but I do want them to be at least customer savvy or sales savvy. Um, so those are the things that I tend to look for.
0: I guess um, something that we've we've been asking as well, just to to other people that we're interviewing at the moment, is how the CSM can be seen as more authoritative. But I don't know if that's something that you look for as well. And it, it potentially goes back to being quite similar to a salesperson in terms of like, how do you command that presence with the people that you're speaking to, especially C-suite, um, to be seen as an expert and somebody that they should listen to? Yeah, I think it's,
2: it goes back to the, what we were just talking about. Probably at the top of the list would be domain expertise. Like, because... You know, think about people in a C-suite, unless they're chief customer officer. The other people in the C-suite are not spending very much time thinking about customer success. So if I sit with them and say, I think the way you have your team organized is not working. And uh, and I understand that they, they don't have any variable compensation. I think you should think about both of those things, right? Now, here's a conversation that a CEO wants to listen to. Like, what do you think the right comp plan for CSM is? And uh, what's, what's wrong with our organization, right? I need to be able to have those kinds of conversations. It's typically not going to be about, you know, here's, here's the part of our product that you guys should be using more. The CEO doesn't, he just doesn't care about that kind of stuff. But anything that has business or people relationship with it. Like if I, if I sat with a CEO and I said, would you like to know what the average net retention rate of the top 50 public SaaS companies in the world the ceo is going to absolutely 100% say yes to that right i have information that he would like he would like to know about so if i'm a, if i create domain expertise i have something to talk to every single c level person about
0: i love that actually because when i so my first job i uh worked for a public uh, an editorial company called emap and i remember um sort of one of the main editors actually saying the best way to get information is to share information yeah. and it kind of yeah to yeah. that point yeah Yeah, if you've ever
2: read a book called The Challenger Sale, this is all about the new world of sales, which is you have to be bold and really be an expert about your product, your domain, and and even the customer's world. And the best salespeople are are not afraid to disagree with their customer because they know the business as well as the customer does, or the prospect in that case. I think the CSM has to be in that same spot. You have to be bold. You have to know your business. And you have to be confident enough to, 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 to stand up with a CEO and say, oh, you're thinking about it the wrong way. That, that nobody who's ever done it that way has ever been successful. So you can do that, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that I'm not supportive of the, of the path that you're taking, right? That's a bold statement
1: for a CSM to do with a CEO, but I think that's where you have to get to the level of confidence. Is it potentially that competitive element as well that you mentioned before? <laughs> so not necessarily relating to the product or service, but there subscribe to, but uh, taking it one level above that and saying, well, other customers that we work with that are having that problem, this is how they solve it.
2: Yeah. I think you have to read your audience, right? The CEO doesn't really care who's logging in and how often they're logging in and what parts of the product they're using and all that it might be vaguely interesting, but he's all about the business. What is the bottom line? What is the result of what we're doing? And tell me what your best customers like. This this is a person who's going to really lean in when you say, my very best customers do this. Uh, and here's the result that they get. And here's what drops to the bottom line. This is why they can manage $3 million of ARR per CSM while you're managing $1.2 million per CSM. CEO, CFO will sit up very straight and pay very close attention to that conversation. Because you've just suggested to them that they could cut their cost in half. For supporting customers. That is a
0: really big deal, right? I guess it goes back to the desired outcomes and being able to uncover those. That's right. And not even fully understanding exactly what it is that's important to them, not what they might think is important to them. Um, yeah. And I guess in terms of putting together those desired outcomes, QBRs are a great opportunity to have face to face time with a customer to fully understand exactly what they want to get out of the products, but is there any ways of which you can perhaps maybe even uncover what they want out of your products? I think this starts in the sales cycle. though. salespeople,
2: the way that you sell is to find what what is your pain point and how can we solve it? So salespeople at the end of a sales process know exactly what the customer wants to get out of the product in almost all cases. What we need to make sure is that information gets captured somewhere so that the very first Meeting between a CSM and a customer can be, hey, I talked to our sales team. They told me that these are the reasons you bought our product. Are we missing anything here? Are these right? And now let's talk about how we're going to measure whether we're delivering against that. And that should be part of every conversation with the customer.
0: Would you do that across the business as well? So with different stakeholders, because obviously they are going to differ. Um, And it's, I guess, understanding not where that focus should be. Should it be at a user level? Or perhaps with the decision makers to uncover what it is that they want to achieve and how that then changes. Yeah, I mean, this—that's at
2: some point there's a cost question involved, right? Can, how many stakeholders can you have that kind of a conversation with? And there's some limit, right? You you can't do that with 200 at every single customer because you just don't have time to do that. So I do think you have to we you know you, we have to deliver as best we can with the resources available to us. What what we think the customer needs. But there's an extent to which you can go on that. You have to be really conscious of, we can't do that. That's too much. You can't ask us to come in all day, every day for for the next six weeks. I've got 30 other customers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's okay to tell customers that. I mean, they know that we're in business. uh, So I don't think we should ever be ashamed to say, hey, uh, I can help you, but you're not the only customer that I have and I can't dedicate full time. And what you're asking for requires full time for three days. So why don't we put together a services engagement and for a few bucks, you can you can del- we can help you deliver that result. But if you work with me, given my limited time, it might take three or four months for us to get there, right? So I think we have to be really conscious of, of our own limited resources and not overcommit, because it's easy to say yes to customers. Much harder to say no. But the best CSMs in the world know how to say no to a customer.
0: Yeah, and it can be damaging as well if you overpromise. And it's something sure. I've learned. Like from yeah. just general experience, promising too much for a client. Yeah. And then you end up working to weekends just to try and deliver yeah. it. And um, it then sets probably the wrong expectation as well. Yeah. Which what it we one can time. deliver because it's then, really yeah.
2: Yeah. Setting expectations is a big part of the customer success job all the time. Like, yeah, because you have to set them and then you have to reset them because they'll start creeping yeah. up. Oh, I thought you were going to do this. No, I never said I was going to do that. We said, we we're going to do this. Let's
1: get back in line here. So is this then, um, I guess, linking back to that empathy? personality that we mentioned so we've spoken in other interviews that we've done around things like success plans so like a service plan like you just mentioned setting those expectations right at the start but then having the ability to recognize where and when and how that might need to change based on product roadmap uh, the client's own position etc
2: yeah i think we we use the term success plans we actually built feature in a product called success plans and the idea is pretty simple just understanding what the customer wants to achieve, getting it in a document so we can start tracking our KPIs against those particular outcomes. Uh and it, it's all very logical, but it's not a discipline that is inherent, I think, in a lot of people. It's like feels like a lot of work. It feels like it's not very strategic, but the reality is somebody somewhere has to say. Hey, to the customer, you said that you wanted to achieve this. We agreed this was the way to measure it. Here's the results we've gotten. Do you agree that we've hit that milestone? And basically, what you're reminding them of is that you're getting value out of our product. So that when renewal time comes, somebody doesn't say, "No, I'm not sure if I'm getting all the that. Well, let's go back and review Tracker. our QBRs. Yeah. yeah, right. They'll remember that. They'll know why it's <laughs> happening too. It's like it's not like they think we're fooling them or something. Yeah. Right? They know.
0: I think I think it is the earliest sign of risk. So if you can't exact like if you don't know exactly why your customer's using your yeah. products and you have that down yeah. and you have that relationship with a yeah. customer whereby you've spoken about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah then you're Certainly. gonna rely on my customer really likes
2: me. I'm pretty sure they're gonna renew because we get along really well. And I'm like, okay, let's see if we can find out a little bit more than that. Because if your customer churns and you're sitting here saying they like you, then I'm not going to like you nearly as much, right? This isn't about being liked. This is about delivering value. And we better have some proof points that we deliver value.
0: And I guess things like that, are, is there anything that you see from customers of GainSire or even just CSMs that you've spoken to that you find that they like have those sort of mentalities? So for example, the customer um, you know really likes me, they're going to renew. Are there any traits or certain things that companies will say and do?
2: I suppose the answer is yes, but I wouldn't. I don't want to rely on that. I want to rely on numbers, right? That's why, even though it's never going to be perfect, this idea of, of a health score is really important because I want this to be objective, not subjective. And I think that's one of the mentalities we have to get over as CSMs is, yeah, there is a subjective part to our job. There's a relationship part to our job, but it has to be a there has to be a measurement part of our job. Like think about sales. Is there a relation part? relationship part to the job of sales. Yeah. Does a sales guy get paid very much money if all of his prospects really like him and none of them become customers? doesn't get paid anything. In fact, he gets fired, right? So yeah, there's, there's this balance almost in every job, more so in sales and customer success where, yeah, there's a relationship part of the job and you want to build trust and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there's some really clear measurements that'll tell us whether the customer is moving in the right direction. And it's your responsibility to make sure those measurements are are there and accurate
1: because uh, you know, you're know you going to be on the hook if they don't redo their contract. I think that's a very static trend for CS in terms of health scores and things like that, um, something that will always be part of customer success. Um, I'm sure this isn't the cash payment question. I'm sure you've been asked this one millions of times, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, where do you think customer success is going in the future? What would be the next biggest trend?
2: Yeah. Um, certainly more process-driven, more data-driven. Uh, I think the best, the best CSMs will be the ones who figure out how to, how to manage more customers um, with the same results and, and the same number of people. Right, that's the that's the real game we're playing here for a CFO and a CEO. Uh, can I can I increase by fifty percent the amount of ARR that each customer success manager is managing? That's really the game. If they're bought into customer success, okay, we know we have to have it now. How do we make it more efficient? I think that's the biggest game. That's why technology is so important as part of this. Um, I think that uh, we have to figure out what the right backgrounds are for CSMs, other than being a CSM, because there's more demand than there is supply. So if I need a bunch of good CSMs, I can't just hire people who have customer success in their background. I have to figure out, should I hire people who have done support? Should I hire people who have done services? Should I hire people who are ex-sales people? We have to figure that out because supply supply is uh, demand is exceeding supply. I think that the job of customer success can become more important because I think after the subscription business model or alongside of it is this thing called, I call the consumption business model, which is that customers no longer pay us a monthly subscription. They pay us only if they use our product. So for example, if you're using a box or Dropbox or something like that today, you're paying them some monthly or yearly subscription rate, but there's a future business model that says, Don't pay me anything until you upload a file and then it costs you a penny. And if you download a file, it costs you another penny, et cetera. That consumption model then changes the balance of power even further. Because now what is a sales transaction? It's an agreement to do business together, but no money changes hands. So now all of a sudden the sales part of the business is really not unimportant, but way less important than it's ever been before. And every single penny of revenue is driven by customer success or post sales or whatever you want to call it. So uh, that model raises the bar for customer success, raises the bar for scalability, all sorts of other things, right? So I think as the business models continue to change, my, my comment is this. We've given all the power to our customers and they ain't giving it back. There is no way we're going backwards, right? If we're customer centric, we think we're customer centric today. Five years from now, we'll look back at that and laugh. That wasn't customer-centric at all because they didn't develop our products for us today. They're developing, whatever the case might be, right? There's going to be an immersion with
1: customers far beyond where we are today. So with the, um, I quite like that consumption model. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I was going to ask about moving more towards being data-driven. You've kind of touched upon it already, but uh, with the emergence of things like AI, predictive analytics, et cetera, will that have a more, telling part in CS, being able to potentially predict what type of customer will carry out which action and when?
2: It, it will, because uh, AI and those kinds of things often require huge amounts of data. And for the most part today, SaaS companies other than Salesforce and a few others just aren't that big. So uh, you, you don't really have the big data situation that you might have uh, in other businesses, but that's starting to happen, especially if you go not from how many customers, because even the biggest SaaS company doesn't have that many customers really, but the number of events they do the number of clicks they do. In your... So there's all sorts of data that I think will become highly predictive. Uh, I don't ever think it's going to be a black box, but I do think, you know, with the right amount of data and really good, smart data science people, you're going to be able to say this customer given the path that they're on and what the last two weeks looks like is a 62% chance of churning, right? I mean, and it'll all be numbers, right? And and, there, and that doesn't mean it'll be perfect, but it, it'll the problem with data science is it gets really nuanced. It's not like, well, they didn't log in for three days. The likelihood of churn is now 28%. It's like, well they didn't they only logged in twice in the last three days. They've only opened 1.7 support tickets in the last two weeks. Uh, they paid their bill two days late. It'll be some combination of nine different data points that'll say the likelihood of their churn just went up by 0.7%, right? It's going to be really small things, but they'll add up and they'll be really meaningful because they can drive our activities, not just because they can be predictive, but predictive is only valuable if they drive our activities. Let's go do something different,
1: with this customer because
2: these indicators say they're not really going quite the direction we want
1: them to. Yeah, so you still have that human interaction of being able to interpret the data yeah, align them with a good feel.
2: A yeah, it's hard for me to see a day where that goes away. I do think as we move to B2C and the really long tail of B2B, you have to automate that, but there's still a human touch. That email template still has to be constructed yeah. by a person so that it feels there's some warmth behind it, not just a machine, right? But I, I I think it's not that far away where uh, software bots are doing meaningful customer success tasks because there's repetitive things. We had a customer of ours ask us the other day uh, if we would license if we would sell them a license for a software bot to use our product. First time I've ever been asked that question. Really interesting.
1: Fantastic.
0: And uh, I was actually just going to take this back to the consumption part as well because I guess businesses like probably Adobe um, and. Google Analytics um, are doing that in some way at the moment, so you, you almost pay for what you measure. What would be your advice to a company thinking about being ahead of the curve and implementing a model like that, whereby none of their competitors are doing it at the moment? It's probably quite a big risk yeah. in terms of forecasting, um, and even perhaps maybe losing some uh, contract value. Like, what? Yeah, what would be your advice to a company and? <laughs> When should they look to take that risk and perhaps adapt to that curve?
2: Yeah, I think there is some risk there, but there are companies doing it already. For example, uh, I call it the consumption model, but you could also just call it the pay-as-you-go model. The two biggest, maybe the two fastest-growing parts of the technology world, Amazon Web Services and Azure, both go by that model, right? You don't pay for more compute power unless you need it. And then if you don't need it anymore, then you can drop it back, right? So it's this moving. It's not this constant monthly fee. It's this moving target based on how much your needs are. Uh, lots of other companies have some aspect of their business that's like this. At Marketo, the way, I don't know if this is still true, but the way we sold our product was, uh, we're going to sell you a database. You can put 25,000 leads into it. If you need one for 50, that costs more. So you're limited to 25. And then a customer would put 35 or 40,000 leads in their database. At renewal time, we'd say, hey, you owe us more money because you went over the limit and you're getting value for every lead you're putting into the right? So that's a consumption-based model because it's driven by them needing more of your product and using more of your product in theory. So I think, uh, I think that's, it's, it's somewhat inevitable. Uh, it's a really tricky thing. There is risk involved. Uh, I think you have to approach it really carefully. You have to say, what does it change about our entire company? It's not a pricing change, right? You have to sell differently because now the sales model is like, hey, we don't think about think about how much easier this feels for a sales guy. You don't pay us anything unless you use our product. And if you hate it and you stop using it, we're not gonna bill you, right? It's like that's that sounds like a pretty easy sale, but you can also set the customer up to think, well, we just won't use it if we don't like it. Right now the customer success job might get a little bit harder because of that. So there's this ongoing balance that needs to happen between kind of sales and post-sales and from a financial standpoint it's really tricky right because there's no guarantees at least with a subscription model even though it, a customer has the choice of churning but we know what we're going to get paid every month or every year on a three-year contract in in uh in the case of a consumption model the customer is going to push back oftentimes because I, I i can't sell something to my cfo where it might cost a dollar this month and a million dollars next month, right? He can't budget for that. And the answer is they are budgeting for it because everyone's using Azure or Amazon Web Services. And we figured out how we, we figured out a way to make that relatively predictable. We're pretty sure the curve of our spend is gonna look like that, because it's gonna go alongside of our number of customers we have or whatever the metrics are. So I think it's it's so much like the subscription
0: model where every part of the business got turned upside down. Yeah, Sales. I like it Because I think as long as your product is providing value, that's going to be a model that's going to work for you because your client's going to be using your product. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it almost kind of just helps differentiate the good from the bad in terms of those products. You, this into plays further, into
2: what should be the psyche of a CEO. Yeah. We
0: build the best product in
2: the world and, and you're telling me there's a model Where if customers use it, they'll pay me every time they use it. That's the model we're going to because I know for sure our product is the best product. Now, that may not be true, but that's what a CEO has to believe. And there's an opportunity there, right? Because then now, now think about how easy it is to measure customer success in that world. Today, we're talking about health scores and retention rates and et cetera, et cetera. If you're fully, if you're a CSM in a fully consumption model business, your measurement is really simple. Did the customer pay us more money today than they did yesterday? That's it. That's my health score, right? Did they use it more, therefore pay us more this month than last month or today versus yesterday? So it becomes really easy to measure, but doesn't mean that the job is easier. In fact, it's probably harder because there will be more fluctuation in it, things like that. But but at least we know exactly uh, how to get value from the customer and get them to use our product more often, get more people to use it. Because on, on a subscription, let's say you had unlimited licenses, doesn't matter if 10 more people use the product, the subscription price is still the same. So this is going to make the business much more, I think, driven by metrics, but the metrics will be much easier to calculate.
0: Great. Now, I know you've um, obviously said you would give us $100 if we ask you a question that <laughs> you've not heard before. <laughs> I don't <only> have five pounds <laughs> in my pocket, by the way, so I have to fake this. And I, uh, I've, I've stole this question from another podcast, but... What question have we not asked you that you think we should have asked? Wow,
2: I I don't think I have been asked that question. I clearly don't have a off the top of my head answer to it. Well, I'll I'll, I'll I think I've answered this question already, but I'll kind of reiterate it, and that is. I do get asked by a lot of people, you know, we live in a world that changes so dramatically all the time. Things come and go pretty quickly. This transformation around the customer is a big deal, but marketing teams use the word transformation all the time because it makes it sound big and important and expensive. Uh, and so I, I do get asked sometimes, uh, is this is, is customer success here to stay? Or is this a short-term thing? Um, and I think my answer is, it's definitely here to stay because the business model I think has changed permanently. We're not, I don't think we'll ever go back to a situation where uh, I'm selling you my software and I ask you guys to write a $3 million check. Uh, and that's the end of it, right? We're not going to collect any more money, nothing else. It's just We're never going back there. Um, and I think uh, because the business model has changed and will continue to change in the same direction, I think customer success is here to stay. In fact, the, the future CEOs, we believe the future CEOs are gonna come up through the customer organization because that'll give you much much better view of the of the entire business if you're involved with customers. Mm-hmm. Um so I think the the growth of customer success will continue. It's it's clearly not just a fad. There's way, way too much demand. It's the fastest growing job in
1: the world for like the third year in a row. That's that can't be a fad. It's gotta be real. So as the fastest growing job in the world, what would be your number one piece of advice to someone that does want to make a transition into a CS role?
2: Um, yeah, I'd say come, come to it with with the mentality that it's a unique combination of people skills and process and data. It's like, think about the very best salesperson you've ever, you've ever known and, and what skills they combine. One part of it certainly is going to be, yes, they're really affable. They're really fun to talk to. They're curious, et cetera. But those are the guys that know the details of their deals better than anybody else. And I say guys, I mean guys and and women, obviously. Uh, They are into the numbers. They're looking at their pipeline. They know their metrics. They know what activities they have to complete to get that uh, deal to the next stage in the pipeline. Customer success is a lot like that. It's that calm, it's that really interesting combination of people slash personality skills and real rigor. Right. I think people who don't know think that sales is shake hands, buy people a drink and a dinner once in a while and they buy from you. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's very much a data driven numbers game. How many prospects do I have to have and And how do I move them from one state? It's very, very rigorous behind the scenes. And customer success has to be the same way. It's not about whether your customers like you. It's not about whether you think they're happy. It's about whether you're delivering value. So you got to figure out how do I deliver value, and how do we measure that, and how do I get the customer to agree that I've delivered value. Yeah,
0: that's it. I think even just like through this interview, I've been writing down keywords, and like some of the things I've got here are product experts, efficiency, measurement, uh, communication people yeah. and I, speak, I guess it kind of speaks to that And yeah. well, Under, I I underline be. the word value because that's it at the end of
2: the day that's it and that's oversimplified but if I if I have to choose a happy customer versus a customer I know is getting value I choose the customer I know is getting value every day of the week uh, whether they feel like they're happy or not doesn't matter me.
0: and I guess just to end where can the people find out more about Gainsight and Pulse and anything else that you guys are doing at the moment yeah, obviously, go to our website.
2: Um, one of the things I'd recommend to every CSM is find find some reading material that is meaningful to you. And it doesn't have to be on the Gainsight website, but if you go to our resources page, if you did nothing else but read and listen to podcasts and webinars and pulse presentations, it would take you six weeks to consume all of our information. Now, the other vendors in the space provide really good data as well. There's a couple of LinkedIn forms. That have really good conversations going on. So, uh, if you're if you if you feel like you don't know enough about customer success because you haven't looked very hard, because there's a lot of resources out there. Now you have to do a little filtering on who's worth listening to and who's sitting in an ivory tower creating theories and has never actually done it. Uh, so I I say kind of pay attention to that, especially if you're on kind of a forum. There's lots of people trying to prove to others how smart they are. Uh, but you'll figure it out pretty quickly. So there's a ton of resources out there. And then Pulse uh, Pulse Europe is in November, first week of November. It's uh, be almost 2,000, I think, customer success people. Uh, and it's great because the thing that people walk away from Pulse with, it's really three things. Number one, I'm not alone because it's easy to feel alone as a CSM because there are just not that many of them out there. Even though it's this great, fast-growing job, there's still not that many of them. So you're not alone. You're not stupid right? Some of the things you're doing are probably even ahead of others. And you think you're five years behind and you're probably not, right? So people walk out of pulse with a real reassurance. Like I'm in the right place at the right time. There's so much energy and enthusiasm around this job. And I'm not stupid and I'm not five years behind everybody else, right? We're all struggling with the same things. And I met somebody else I'm going to spend some time with and we're going to share how things are going, right? that There's just so much value in the educational part of Pulse. There's a fun aspect as well, but more than anything else, the networking and meeting other people.
1: I think so. Dan and I both went last year. It was really enjoyable. I think the one thing we took away from it was that community vibe. Yeah, It is very much of a a community, very educational, like you say, and everyone is willing to to learn from each other.
2: And a community is really important because it's a new role uh, that you want to gather with other people who are doing it for that reassurance. But there's also something about customer success managers that lends itself towards community. Like they really want to be involved in something that they feel like is bigger than just them. And they're really willing to share and they want to be really collaborative. And that's not true of every job in the world, right? There's a personality aspect that leads people into a job and the, the personality aspect that leads people to customer success uh, lends itself towards community really well. Definitely.
0: Yeah, I think that's something I've seen just in myself. Being helpful, yeah. um, it's probably it's just something it's in my it DNA. Is, yeah. I've always been like that, and I find that. with Otherwise, you wouldn't choose to do that for a bunch of angry customers.
2: Every day, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, it's, it's a hard yeah. job, but we have we have to get self gratification out of the fact that the call I did with that customer just provided them a ton of value, yeah. and no one else in the world knows it except me and them, and that's yeah. good enough mm-hmm. for me. I don't need to stand on the stage with a big check in my hands yeah. to feel good about that, right?
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dan. Really appreciate it. And yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. hope to see us again in the future. Great. Thank you very much.
2: Happy
1: to be here. Thank you.